Hi, you're listening to the Talking Tough podcast, brought to you by Dr. Martins and hosted by me, Georgia Moot, a model and a presenter from London. Over the past year, we've had to be tougher than ever. So we're back again to discuss stories of resilience with our guests, covering important topics such as the politics of gender and Black Lives Matter. We explore how our guests have got through tumultuous times. Hope you enjoy. On today's episode of Talking Tough, we have Emma Dabbery. Emma is an author, academic and broadcaster who uses her voice to drive conversations within the realm of race and racism. Emma has published three books with her debut novel, Don't Touch My Hair, released in 2019, and What White People Can Do Next, receiving rave reviews across the board. You might have also seen Emma popping up on your TV screens, on Channel 4 News, or on your pages, having written for the likes of Grazia and The Guardian. Drawing from the historical to the current issues in popular culture, Emma provides a nuanced, relevant and informed discussion of the Black experience. So Emma, welcome to Talking Tough. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. So I wanted to kind of begin by talking about uh, where you grew up and your identity surrounding that. So you are Irish, correct? Yeah. So um, how was that experience for you? What was it like growing up in Ireland? Well, I, I don't know what it would be like growing up in Ireland if you were white, but growing up in Ireland, um, my dad is Nigerian. Um, so growing up in Ireland in the 80s, um, having a black dad, not even like be, being black, you know, um, people people didn't really call me mixed race. I was, people just, you know, described me as black. That's the concept I had of myself. Um, it was actually pretty hard. The country was incredibly um like just homogenous like racially homogenous um it was like 99.9 percent white if i saw another black person or a person of color it was unusual and <laughs> something of an event and there were a lot of there were quite a lot of negative idea even though there were very few black people present an absence of black people there was a presence of stereotypes and prejudices ideas about black people but most people hadn't met any black people <laughs> so I was the lucky beneficiary of um you know of a lot of those kind of ideas um so yeah it was like my race was a really big thing it was like the black girl oh my god like there's a black girl. I've never met one of those before. That's quite a lot of weight to have <laughs> on your shoulders um, growing yeah, up. Kind of and especially when people put, um, I would find it funny when people put stereotypes on, like you said, when they haven't met and you're, you're kind of there to either confirm or deny. <laughs> and that's almost yeah. like the role that you're put into is like, okay, I'm either going to have to educate someone on this or on that today. And that can be, I can only imagine, quite tiring. Um, I also, I really understand what you were saying. And I think this happens in a lot of the UK uh, in kind of smaller areas. Um, well, not the UK, but the UK and Ireland. Um, but I think if you're 
even have a bit of black in you it's like because they don't have anyone else who's blacker than you yeah uh, you are put in that <laughs> you're just like yeah you're black yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. lumped in <laughs> yeah completely completely but I also think like processes of racialization happen differently in different countries then from like I, I was born in Ireland but then I went to the states um like straight away and then I came back when I was four or five and we were in we lived in Atlanta which is like a very black city and my dad was studying in Morehouse which is a HBCU like a historically black university um and in that environment as well I, I like I was very much read as black again the kind of idea of there being like kind of I guess the black community in America has people of lots of different shades and complexions so within that, when I went when I went back to America as a teenager, um, again, I was very much being read as black, albeit like a light-skinned black person, but still very much like within blackness. Um, it was when I came to the UK, actually, was the first time, obviously I had heard the term mixed race before, of course, but I had never had it like imposed on me in terms of actually this, this is what you are. So the, I, I think mixed race is a, a a category that is more in use more in some places than others. So it was not something that was particularly present in Ireland or in the States. And then it was very kind of present in, in, in the UK. Yeah, that's a really great summarization of it. I guess it's like historically, culturally, like you said, there's so much variation in uh, how people identify. And I think... Yeah. yeah, for real. And like it might have changed, it might have changed now, but certainly like in the 90s, even there was maybe like something of a suspicion if you were to describe yourself as mixed race, like you're trying to actually dis distinguish yourself from black people. You're trying to say, oh, actually, I'm different to you, you know? So it wasn't just like, um, it's not necessarily like a neutral category and it has different, different meanings in different places. I wanted to move on to kind of talk more specifically about the past year. Um, so obviously this past year has been extremely challenging, especially in uh, conversations around blackness um, and racism within the world, really. Um, how have you coped with this year? I've always been talking about this stuff. From now, there's just more opportunity to and more people willing to listen. I didn't. I actually didn't have the same, I guess... Um, rage and shock and surprise at what happened in the summer because it's actually just been happening like consistently you know um I've been in that state like aware of all of this stuff for like a long time so I think like for a lot of people this was like kind of a wake-up call but yeah I mean there was a big sea change in terms of um a mass of people coming coming on coming on board and like obviously what happened to George Floyd and it being re recorded was like particularly like disgusting and horrific there that, that's like as you know that's like the history of the United States the history and the present these things happen with content with a with, with continuity but I don't think there were ever so many people that were affected 
by it. I think it was to do with everyone being at home and being quarantined and on their phones and social media so much, where so much of this was playing out. Um, it just really sparked. It sparked something that, like, you know, the Tinder had kind of been burning, and then it, like, that event and the the response to it seemed kind of like a turning point. It's actually making me think that I had, like, quite a lot of, like white people being like, oh my God, this must be like so hard for you. And I'm just like, well, why, like, why this in particular? Like, this is, like, this is like the first time this has happened, you know? Like, just because you, you are now hearing, you are now hearing about this stuff or you are now feeling moved by this stuff. But that doesn't mean it's like the first time everybody is coming to consciousness about this, you know? Well, that leads me really nicely on to my next question, which was, like you said, this has been going on for a very, very long time. And then it suddenly got this kind of rise of momentum and people, um, I guess, kind of jumping on board and catching up. How did that make you feel? Was it kind of frustrating at points or was it was it more tiring? Um, how did you handle that? For me personally, it, it, it did... Um... The, the new interest, I know a lot of people were really skeptical of it. And I think there's like reason, well, I mean, yeah, in, in some ways there were lots of things that were just kind of trend driven and performative, but I don't know, I wouldn't just focus on that. I also think a lot of people really like are committed to, um, committed to, oh, it's a difficult one. Cause yeah, there are people that are actually committed to changing stuff, you know, and I think are really invested white people as well. Um, and then there are also lots of people that are just, you know, kind of being quite performative and it's probably not really shifting anything massively internally. Then there's people that are actually just disinterested, but maybe have to like kind of pretend like they care slightly. And then there's also just a massive backlash against it. There's lots of people, there's lots of white people who are like deeply resistant and um, enraged by the um the attention and focus that is now on racism so there's different responses from people yeah I find that really interesting the kind of um from the events of George Floyd to kind of I guess now the present day how like you said people have sort of fallen into different categories or sometimes mixed through both you know within their responses um I mean, I know around the time of Black Lives Matter, there was a lot of stuff talking about, um, it's almost like the stages of grief and how people flow through different ones. And I almost feel like there was, I don't know, maybe we should make like a stages of response. Does that flow into the themes of your book of what white people can do next, this idea as to kind of what we can do to continue? Yeah, so spoiler alert, the title is actually like um, kind of subversive. And while it is what white people can do next, the book is actually like for, for everyone. And it's like what, <laughs> what everyone can do next. I kind of set the idea of white people up in the title to, to to deconstruct it so I think the book is actually quite different to what a lot of people um anticipated it to be it, it's actually more subversive it's not actually just a miss of two white people I'm using that uh term because it's to taboo in a way because people react um when they hear that I get emails from people now I'm getting emails from people that are like how dare you call the book this it's deeply from white people saying it's deeply offensive it's deeply patronizing if they read the book they would see that by page three I talk about why trying to speak to a generic category of white people in this way is actually 
a problem, but I set it up to kind of knock it down. But people love to judge a book by its cover. So, you know, um, here we are. So I, 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 I think a lot of the ways in which the current anti-racism discourse is framed and approached will not bring about the necessary change that needs to happen. And in fact, reinforces some of the problems that exist. Um, one of the things that I talk about in the book is the ahistorical nature of lots of the anti, the current anti-racism um, discourse. There is very like radical and instructive, both in what it got right and what it got wrong, organizing from the 1960s, from the 70s, from the 80s. Yet while we kind of know the names of some of those organizations and maybe some of the people, we don't really seem to study what they've written, um, the, the kind of theory that they were drawing on. And when there has been all of this amazing, there's this amazing lineage of work that exists, it's just strange to me that one wouldn't one wouldn't draw on that. Someone's already done all, many people have already done all this work. Like we, we can, we can, you know, tap into that rather than, or also I see people having these debates about issues that like, they're getting really caught up in these debates. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if you just like, if we just read this like one book, you would see that debate happened like 10 years ago and it's been resolved. So we don't actually need to have this back and forth now because it's, it's, they already did that. We're scrambling around trying to get to where they'd already gotten to, where we could be like kind of building on it, you know? It's, it's actually quite frustrating. I think it has to do with another one of the themes of the book is, well, like capitalism. The origin of capitalism is um, the type of capitalism that has created the system that we live under now also finds its origins at that point when race is being invented because of the system of exploitation of labor. And the two are like intimately interlinked. So in order to understand racism, we actually have to also understand, understand capitalism. But that is again, kind of seem, capitalism and class seem to be disregarded in the current conversation. And there's this focus on interpersonal privileges instead which is actually like not structural, which is bizarre because you always hear people saying, oh, it's structural racism. But then I'm like, well, if we're going to talk about structures, why are we obsessing on interpersonal privileges rather than the structure of class? But hey, again, I, I just find like a lot of inaccuracies and inconsistencies and contradictions um, in the current moment. But that, that's all that's what that's what the new book is about. So it's all it's all there. move on to talk about uh, hair and um, obviously your first book was entitled Don't Touch My Hair, um, something I've had to say many a time in my I'm life. I'm sure. <laughs> um, and I just wanted to ask what does your hair represent to you? This is actually something I could have answered like a lot more easily before I had actually thought about hair so much. Now that I've thought about it like so much it's become like really really complicated and the answer could just go in like 50 million different ways. Um, it's also weird that, you know, like, I think I might have overthought it to the point where I'm just like, it's just me. It's just a part of me, like, whatever. Um, but in terms of like, hmm, 
like historically what it's meant was maybe at an early age there was a lot of like shame and discomfort associated with my hair that moved on a whole journey through being like very like proud of my hair um and like you know really like um asserting like my identity through my hair to this point now where I'm just like yes my hair it's in a head wrap yeah can't even see it (laughs) come full circle (laughs) no I also I understand that where um because I think sometimes on a lighter level I'm like just some aesthetic place it's it's all right I like it it does what it does (laughs) yes there it's my hair and then sometimes it's like you get into this this space of it also being something that's very like deeply entwined with your identity and it really is like I always say it's to me it's such a um kind of really represents my blackness and it's a signifier of my blackness um Mm -hmm. because my skin color isn't so much so do you know what I think it is as well in lockdown like usually I wear it braided like in different braided styles and obviously I haven't had like access to like my hairstylists and 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 whatnot so it's actually just like not really been braided in the same way so I think maybe it's just I'm just I've just often got a head wrap on and I think I wear like a lot of like Yoruba styles Mm. a lot of like traditional African styles and I think maybe when it's in those styles you know um like um that 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 is like um creating its own kind of energy it's really interesting what you said about race and hair as well a lot of what I write about and don't touch my hair is the way in which hair was very much used to determine blackness and in a number of countries to this day um the categories that somebody the racialized categories was determined by that but by their hair and i was talking to uh, a cuban friend of mine and she was saying how her daughter is like a similar complexion to me but we have completely different hair textures so we would actually have different racial categories um so yeah i think because the words that we use for race are black and white the emphasis is thrown onto color but as i say in the book there's lots of people with like dark skin who are not racialized as black like there's lots of indian people with dark skin there's lots of indian people who have darker skin than say lots of african-american people but the african-american people are black and the indian people are not black so it's not the process of racialization is about or the racial category black is not just about the color of skin it's like a combination of features and characteristics and hair is incredibly significant within that well it's that whole debate around um the idea of the word race and whether we should still even use it as like a um uh a category basically like because it's obviously so much about genetics but as you just said like genetics is so um subjective and uh very like we were saying earlier like based on culture historical and very kind of contextual um which I find is a really interesting conversation not one that I know which side I'm on yet but um yeah it's, it's very interesting when the emphasis is on kind of genetics uh how that can then also be very quite easily disproved I think I was told once that um we're actually uh there's more differences like within each uh racial group than there is between racial groups yeah so there's more genetic diversity in Africa than there is between people in some parts of Africa and people in some parts of Europe 
Um, and also, I'm so glad that you said that about race. So in the book that I've just written, I only almost consistently, I don't do it every single time, but it, I think it, it's a bit like what? Almost every time I say black or white, I put it in inverted commas. And I don't explain why I'm doing that until maybe halfway through the book, but I'm doing that to really highlight the fictitious nature of race and the fact to disrupt the ease with which we just, because obviously we use the terms black and white because we haven't come up with other ways of um, understanding ourselves and each other. We haven't done that yet. We're still operating according to a logic inherited um, by slave owners. We're still understanding ourselves according to that logic. Um, but we need to be aware that that's the logic that we're understanding ourselves according to. So to just disrupt the ease with which we say black and white, I put it in inverted commas. And I draw on Stuart Hall and um, the way he talks about these ideas of black and white and race as being past their sell by date and being under erasure. <laughs> was it that really drew you to uh, writing your first book and having the title about hair? What was it that kind of made that an entrance conversation? Well, I teach African studies and I just think there's, there's so much African history and there's so much beyond history methods for um, organising knowledge differently for organizing society differently like literally like kind of for decolonizing or literally to to provide us with tools other than the master's tools i know like the quote from audrey lord is overused almost to the point of cliche but when she says the master's tools will never will never dismantle the master's house i'm like i hear people repeat that and i'm like great but you're actually still just using the master's tools where else can we find the other tools and to me that is in often in like indigenous and pre-colonial um, knowledge systems so with the book it was an opportunity for me to bring some of those epistemologies um, and knowledge systems um, ways of like presenting that information to people in like accessible and meaningful ways that um, tapped into popular popular culture um, and hair because it's of so much significance within black communities and also in that way that race was invented hair was such a potent part of how the racialization of black people hair was so um, was so central in that. And there was like so much stigma came to be attached to hair, to, to, to Afro textured hair. But also before that text, before that stigma ever existed, hair was of great significance to, um, to African people because our hair texture can do so much, can be manipulated in so many ways that um, there was like a, just a very lively, expressive visual language with deep like spiritual um, significance as well, which I talk about in the book um, that, that existed. So I wanted to, I just wanted to kind of bring all of that like wealth of information to people, but hair kind of provided a lens through which provided a platform, I guess, which you could, which I could do it in kind of like a, an accessible way, tapping into popular culture, I think, yeah. 
So I think um, there's uh, also a level of maybe like accessibility with hair. Um, it's a route to get um, the kind of racial conversation in a way that people is quite digestible. Um, yeah. And I think that people can understand. Uh, but yeah, I think... We, or that people feel emotionally invested in. I mean, your book, it sounds like it's... Because um, I think there's also a misconception that uh, it's just hair and that you know the the microaggressions aren't always understood and I definitely know that I didn't have the tools growing up to uh, vocalize why that would frustrate me and I feel like if I'd had your book growing up that would have really helped um you know be, me be able to kind of express why uh this is of importance and why I don't want someone <laughs> touching my hair so yeah that's I, I wanted it to exist as like you know just a reference point whereby that person who's having those experiences as I myself was um you know could just like draw on all that information and just have like kind of have that have that material ready and available and it actually it says on the book um I think it says on the back or on the blurb um, something to the effect of um, why black hair is never just hair because that kind of dismissal is just hair and like kind of why what, why black hair matters, you know, and why it's not just this shallow and facile, superficial um, topic. So when do you feel your toughest? I feel like when I need to, um, I'm being challenged on something by somebody who doesn't like know what they're talking about is willfully or otherwise um, kind of ignorant. And I need to articulate in a really like quick and succinct way um, my kind of vantage point or, or, or the perspective that I'm coming from. Um, so I feel like then I just kind of go into a mode and I'm like, yeah, probably at my, at, at my toughest. What does tough mean to you? I think to me, like principles being like principled about something. I don't necessarily, be, I, I, no, I, I really don't believe in really rigid and unyielding worldviews. Um, I think we need to have the scope to change, adapt and like develop our positions. But throughout that change and evolution, I, I have guiding principles and those guiding principles are probably like a toughness or a consistency. And lastly, where can people find you? Um, just the, the, the usual digital spaces. Um, my name, uh, Emma Dabry on Twitter, on Instagram, um, in bookshops, um yeah well thank you so much for joining us today it's been such a joy um to talk to you and yeah I just you're so well versed on the topic um so I feel like I really learned a lot so thank you so much you're welcome